Welcome to episode 98 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we take a trip to the outback with the Australian coming-of-age film, Baby Teeth. But first, how are you, Scott? You know, I am doing okay. Everything is, of course, uh, going as it was this week. I got, I'm got i on a new project for, for work and getting absolutely rocked by it with some very, very late nights. But that's how it goes sometimes. And so getting to this weekend and getting uh, to watch a, a movie and think once again about the movies that we're watching for the podcast now, as opposed to what we'd be watching if movies were, if everything was still normal and coronavirus hadn't happened was another minor depressive episode for me when that happened. But no, I think the movie we watched and we'll get into it here in a second was worthy of, of going to the theater and watching. And I think uh, I was maybe a little bit skeptical for the first bit of the movie, but uh, I think by the end of it, I was I was pretty satisfied. And then overall, yeah, just an, another week goes on. I have to one more week on this project that I'm on right now. And then we have the full Fourth uh, of July week off. So that'll be nice. I'm going to have a nice, uh, I don't know, seclu- <laughs> I guess like escape Boston to New to yeah. Hampshire into the mountains for a few days, which will be nice. Uh, it's like one socially distancing in my apartment to socially distancing in a cabin, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but no, it should be good. That's How are you? I'm good. Hey, look, we got your review of, of baby teeth there. So let's, what, let's put a score on it and we can move on to the news. I think. Uh, sure. Yeah. I actually forget scores this week. Let's just go straight to go ahead and rant about, <laughs> a, a, about theater chains and masks. Let's just go yeah, ahead and get to it. That's what, it, what everyone's here to hear. Right now I'm, I'm doing good. Um, you know, just studying. I, I took a full, practice exam this week, mm-hmm. a, a practice multiple choice, uh, which is like one day of the exam. So I basically did the whole t- six hours, 200 questions, uh, which is what day two of the bar is. And, um, you know, so so I know that I can do it now. Uh, of course, I actually, I, I should have tested myself wearing a mask because we do have to wear masks. Um, yeah while we're taking it but uh i didn't but i i don't think that it will be too much of a, a problem i think i'm going to be pretty much locked in on the uh the test the whole time Ho- hopefully so um, i'm shocked but, yeah, that north uh, carolina requires you to wear a mask while you're taking the exam <laughs> yeah I, I know but things are actually getting pretty bad in north carolina my, like my friend yeah. still thinks that they might cancel the bar exam which I mean, in twelve states this weekend, there are record new numbers of cases. Yeah, and I'm, I'm I would bet that that North Carolina is one of them. But man, it would suck so hard if they canceled it at this point. And I, I don't think they will. Again, I've, as I've been saying uh, all yeah. along, I feel like this is a thing where it's pretty easy to maintain social distancing. Um, as it's long just as the everyone fact is, that you're that you're indoors for you know all day, breathing the same yeah. recycled air. That like that's the that's the issue, right? Which yeah, is why the masks I, I mean, are important. That's why the masks are important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like everyone's going to comply. They have to or they're going to be turned away. So yeah. I feel like at this point, they're not going to change anything. But who knows? So you can't predict anything in 2020. But hey, sure. look, you know, you, you mentioned uh, that you were thinking about what movies we'd be watching in theaters this week. We only have a few more weeks left, it seems like, before we actually 
may yeah. be back in theaters. So um, I, I guess that's maybe. exciting. I, I mean, I, I definitely think it's it's sooner than we expected, maybe a month or, or two ago that, that I don't think we would could have expected that we'd be going back to theaters at the end of July. But um, it looks like that's going to be the case. Yeah, I think that Mulan is what the first big release on the calendar, like, like the first yeah. big release on the calendar. There's no way that Disney goes first. They'll, they're going to delay that film. Um, so I, I still yeah. expect Tenet to be the first film back, which is your to your point, July 31st into July. So we'll see. We will indeed. Well, that is still a few weeks away when we get back to theatrical releases. Uh, but for now, we're chugging along with the VOD releases and another one today uh, with Baby Teeth. Uh, directed by Shannon Murphy, Baby Teeth is the story of Mila, a terminally ill 16-year-old girl played by Little Women's Eliza Scanlon. As the film opens, Mila is sad, lonely, and seriously comp contemplating getting her fate out of the way early as she stands on railroad tracks. But then, out of the blue, she meets Moses, a loose cannon drug dealer played by Toby Wallace, and is instantly smitten. Unfortunately for Mila, Moses is 23, and her caring parents, played by Ben Mendelsohn and Essie Davis, do not approve of both his older age and his wayward hedonism. Mila's parents, however, have problems of their own, too, as their marriage is on the rocks, and each of them has their eye caught by another person. Scott, as Murphy's film bounces from comedy to drama with hyperactive fury, uh, does it leave its own unique stamp, or is this coming-of-age tearjerker lost in the shadow of the Fault in Our Stars and Lady Bird? Yeah, I think it's a good question, and I think maybe more so than than a lot of the films that we've watched this year. And I guess it might be similar to Defy Bloods and How I Was Feeling About It, but this one is just like maybe almost sort of the opposite, where I felt like as long as Defy Bloods went on, I'm like, I don't know if I'm super getting everything that this film is doing. It had its high note towards the end of the film, but it start, I thought I thought that the five blood started strong and then I just got, I kind of wore on me a little bit over time. And baby teeth was kind of the opposite. I think that I it was a it, to me the way that I describe it is it was just a total mixed bag for like the first half of the film. I think I really liked the parts that were Eliza Scanlon and Toby Wallace. I think these two characters like that for me from start to finish they were the most interesting sort of thread within the film that relationship and i guess just particularly the the psychology of eliza scanlon's character i think maybe was part of probably the most interesting part especially the first half of the film because honestly i just didn't care that much about the parents relationship i like it felt like it was a distraction from what i felt was the more engaging and more interesting part of the film and that's a i mean i love ben mendelson and i will say that i think i came around on that and i found that more interesting towards the end of the film particularly because I think it started to explore the particular relationships between, you know, each parent and Eliza Scanlon's Mila. Uh, and I think that that's what eventually kind of bought me into those characters because I just really couldn't be bothered with their like whole marital issues. It, honestly, it even felt like it was kind of half baked. And so any time that was kind of invested in playing out both their the intro relationship there between the two of parents, but also their extramarital um, relationships, which really aren't anything either. It's, it's more just kind of for yeah. an exploration, like a mental exploration more than anything. And it does speak, I think to the overall narrative of the film of, of this family and, and the, you know, incredibly challenging place that they find themselves in over the course of the film with their daughter being, you know, a terminally ill ca cancer patient. Um, but overall, I felt like, largely that subplot was a bit of a distraction, even though I thought that Ben Mendelsohn and Essie Davis were both good 
in these roles. Um, I I'd stand for Ben Mendelsohn all day. I think he's awesome. I think he was he was really good in the Outsider earlier this year, and maybe with the exception of like Ready Ready Player One, I think he's he's been in mostly pretty good stuff. Um, for like the from, you know from what I can gauge, like I mean all the way back to Animal Kingdom, like the original Animal Kingdom, the Australian film. Um, yeah, so I, I think overall they're really good. And then yeah, Eliza Scanlon is the standout. I think she's you say little women's Eliza Scanlon. I say sharp objects, Eliza Scanlon, because she's been playing the same role uh, for yeah. about three years. And I hope she gets out of it soon because she has the market cornered on sick teenage girls, man. I tell you, she she is the only person these people seem to go to to play that role because uh, she plays it. I mean, she's really good. She was fantastic in Little Women. I thought she was underrated even in Little Women, not, not by you, obviously. But I mean, everyone's talking for understandable reasons about Sierra Sharon and about Florence Pugh. Maybe less so about Emma Watson, but it really felt like uh, some of some of her work there playing Beth, I think, was maybe a little bit a little bit underrated. And yeah. I think she shows again why here, and I think that she showed that in Sharp Objects as well. And and overall, she's just really fantastic. I think she carries uh, this movie most of the time. I think Toby Wallace is a really interesting character. And I, I think uh, my only problem with him is not really in the performance whatsoever. And I'll talk more about the performance later. It's just the like. With this particular character, it, it felt like there were lots of aspects of the film that were very stereotypical of an indie coming of age movie. And I think that this character is like the most stereotypical part of an indie coming of age movie. It's like troubled boyfriend who you shouldn't be with. And you don't really, as a viewer or an audience, understand why she's really that interested in it. Of course, it's important for her, again, like the development of this character for her to be interested in this person and to question that and to, and to go through that experience. But overall uh, I was really worried that it would just kind of fall into a bit of a trap uh, with this character. And I think in some ways that it did in some ways it didn't. Um, but by the end of the film, again, in spite of it being maybe a bit of a mixed bag for the first hour, I think the last 20, 25 minutes are some of the best of the year. Like I think this film, like it, it finally fires in all cylinders and maybe it's going a little bit too hard into the tear jerkiness of it. But in spite of that, I still think, the final shot, especially uh, like final couple minutes on the uh, there's a scene on the beach that was just like, man, that really that really hit home and got me. And and I think part of that is also just how the whole film was shot. The cinematography, I think, was kind of what you expect almost from an indie indie film that a kind of prestige indie film is very claustrophobic, um, not refined in a way that you'd expect like a studio movie movie to be. And I think it works really well for this film, because I think one of the things that that a movie like Lady Bird didn't have is it didn't have that claustrophobic cinematography that really got you up and in the face of a lot of these characters. And that's for a particular reason, right? It's, it's trying to do something different with its imagery. And this film is, is doing something different in its own right. And I think it really worked for this film overall. And, and ultimately uh, the emotion, the emotional scenes that hit home and uh, like almost all of this film is super raw, but the ones that actually work towards the end of the film, I think a lot of that really, stand on the really firm foundation that some of the technical aspects of the film sort of lay out over the course of the whole project. And overall, I was pleased with it. I think that is one of those things where if I came into the movie at like the 45 minute of the hour mark, I probably would have given it five stars. Like it's, it's really, really good. Um, but I think it's just, it's really slow to start for me overall, but it, it finds the right balance towards the end. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm in pretty much the exact same boat as you. I think I, I, you know, during the first 20, 30 minutes of this movie, I was like, what am I watching right now? Yeah, I totally um, agree. Yeah. It, it was out of control. And I I was really worried about the length of the movie at that point, because I mean, Me this too. is like two hours long, which is longer yeah. than this type of movie usually is. And I would um, say still longer and, than this movie should be. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. that I mean, yeah. you know, you know me, I'm always going to say that. But yeah. um, I, I think 
so at that point I was looking at the running time and I was like, Oh man, this is going to be, this is going to be tough. Um, but like I, I kept, I kept telling myself like this movie has gotten great reviews. I mean, it's at 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. I've seen several like of my letterbox people that I follow, like just give it really, really high scores from four to five stars. Um, and so I, I was like, there's gotta be something here, right? I'm not, is it possible? I'm just not going to get this movie. And no, I, I don't think, that that's the case. I, I do think I, I got it in the end. I don't think I was positive on it as, you know, some of those people seem to be, and, and maybe some of the, a lot of the critic reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and stuff are, um, because I do think it is really uneven. I, I think that I, maybe I jinxed myself a little bit with the whole female filmmakers are killing it comment. Not because I think that this movie isn't, I mean, I think this movie is good. Like I would say this is a good movie, but I think the direction might be the weakest part of the movie. Like I think that, it doesn't exactly know what it wants to be. And there's kind of this forced quirkiness to it um, that definitely got on my nerves a little bit at times. Like the, the chapter titles on the screen, I, I felt like that. was just I too arch. Um, yeah. Like it, it, and I, like I compare it, compared to Lady Bird there, you, you kind of compared it to Lady Bird a little bit too. I feel like Lady Bird was like, had the same like t level of quirkiness in it, but the thing that made that work was that like it was the quirkiness came from these details that were like so specific where it was like this, this obviously came from a very real place. There's obviously something authentic about this uh, because there's such a specificity in these details. And yeah, maybe that makes for a, a you know, a, a slightly abnormal experience, but yeah, it makes it feel, it makes it feel more real because of that. Whereas here, I just felt like the, some, some of the quirks and everything were just, uh, were just dressings and kind of like, again, very artificial. And it felt like, um, you know, Shannon Murphy and her screenwriter were kind of just throwing these in there to be like, Hey, look, our film is different. This isn't the fault in our stars. You know, this isn't your average coming of age, um, movie. And at times it is, I mean, I think there are, uh, there are some tropes here for sure, but to your point, yeah, I think you just look at this does, on paper and this thing looks like it's going to be yeah. riddled with tropes. <laughs> To your point, I think the movie does hit its stride, you know, in that second half in particular. I think that, I mean, for me, what it comes down to is, I, I mean, you, I think you made a good point of like, yeah, maybe the the Mila and Moses relationship is more interesting than what's going on with the parents. I think it's more the the serious moments, the more dramatic moments work better for me than like when they're trying to be funny a little. Like, I, I just didn't find that the comedy, the off kilter comedy here work maybe it just wasn't my my type of of comedy but i think when the movie is more serious um like i i felt like it was pretty emotionally powerful in some scenes particularly you know you mentioned the beach like just the, the last you know 25 30 minutes of the movie i think that shannon murphy and screenwriter and the whole cast they really nailed it in, in that last 30 minutes and that that brought it home for me and and i do think the cast is really good like i think the cast might be the best thing about the movie, uh, you know, Eliza Scanlon. Like, yeah, it, it's true that she has played a lot of sick girls, but I think this one is definitely different from, uh, I mean, definitely different from Beth March, but also, like, I, I didn't watch much of Sharp Objects, but from what I remember of her character in Sharp Objects, I feel like there's there's more of a vibrancy to her her character in this movie. Um, so even, even though they're... Um, even though, yes, she on paper again, she is the sick teenager, and I, I did laugh about that when I realized that, you know, here this character is terminally ill, which which is another thing, right? Like just sort of as a side, they don't. I feel like it's just like you're thrown at you all of a sudden, like 20, 25 minutes into the movie, it's like 
after her chemo treatment or something like is, is part of one of the chapter titles on screen. And I'm like, if I didn't know that, like the, if I hadn't read the plots, you know, description. I, so I hadn't beforehand. read the plots. I didn't know that until, yeah. until it pops on the screen there. Yeah. And, and, but it, it's such an important part of the movie. I feel like that. I, I don't know. I, I just felt like they lost something maybe by not like establishing that from the beginning. I mean, I'm not saying they needed like a diagnosis scene or anything like that, but it is just kind of jarring. I imagine if if you don't know that that she's terminally ill, when all of a sudden it's like, oh, I mean, maybe that's the point, but um, I, that that was just a little weird for me. But back to my point, I think yeah. that the cast is really good. I think Eliza Scanlon shows that she can anchor a movie, she can lead a movie here. Like you know, Little Women was obviously more of an ensemble piece. Her character was relegated to the background. I definitely agree with you that I, as I've watched the movie more and more, I think I, I think I, her performance really is one of my favorites. But yeah. again, she's not in the spotlight like a Saoirse Ronan or Florence Pugh is in the movie. So, and trust um, us, listeners, Scott has watched it a bunch, so he's an expert seven times. Um, <laughs> but I think she's really strong. I like Toby Wallace. We we saw him on a show called The Society on Netflix. I think he he branches out nicely here with with this role. And I think Ben Mendelsohn and S.E. Davis, even where their characters are maybe a little like all over the place, um, I think the performances yeah. they hit some really good emotional notes towards the end. Um, so yeah, I think this is this is ultimately a, a successful movie. I do wish that the direction was a little more controlled. I like, of course, I'm going to bring it you're going to roll your eyes when I say this because like, of course I'm going to bring him up, but like this, this is the type of movie where like, I really can appreciate what Richard Linklater does because the, th this movie is kind of like plotless and meandering a little bit. Like there's not, there, there's not a whole lot of structure to the movie, but I feel like, like, whereas, you know, meandering is sometimes offered as a criticism of films. I think it's it would be like a fair criticism for this movie because at times you're like, where is this going? You don't feel like the director has great control over what's going on. Whereas like in a Linklater film, he always knows where you're going. Like he he, ha he has such a, a controlled hand over his films. Uh, so so it made me appreciate him more. Not that I could do that. Not that I could appreciate him more, maybe. But uh, I, I did think about that. Maybe that's that's a ridiculous uh, comparison to make. But I, I think that that is the impression I got at times that this movie is plotless and meandering, but not in a good way. Like where, where I necessarily like trust that the director is going to get me to where I need to go. And I, I mean, I think she did ultimately. Um, yeah. But I, I, I doubted her at, at certain moments in the first half of the movie, at least. Yeah. I mean, Eliza Scanlon's got that mad mischievous, chaotic energy to her, which she had in sharp objects. Like I think this performance is a lot closer to sharp objects than it is. Yeah. To, to little women just because of her personality but i i hear what you're saying around the vibrancy and, and the life there but there's just there's a mischievousness about the character that i think is really engaging and really um really sucks you in and i think the movie would have been better off just cutting the sort of parental like the 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 relationship between the parents and everything that's going on there because it really just feels like they they really have i mean they half-assed that right like they, they don't really they don't really commit to that that plot line it doesn't feel like very much. And by the yeah. end of it, it's really just about the relationship between the parents and the daughter. I, I agree. But I think that, um, I think there are some parts of it that, that work for me. And I read an interview today with Shannon Murphy, some things that she said about what they were going for, for the movie that I'll, I'll say, I'll mention some of that later, but I think that ultimately helped me understand maybe the parental stuff a little bit more, even if I do ultimately agree with you that I think in the first half, at least again, it was, 
it was a little half baked and definitely the least interesting part of the movie. But we can get like, there eventually. Like if, like if you compare it to, be- sorry, I'm just I'm stuck on it. I guess if you compare it to <laughs> Beautiful Boy, which I don't know, I can't remember if you ever if you ever watched Beautiful that. Boy. But like that movie is about Timothy Chalamet being a drug addict and the father's relation, essentially the father's relationship with him, and like the father has a lot of issues in like in his marriage that are related to the drug addiction of his son of you know his and his wife's son right but like the movie doesn't doesn't really feel like it it spends a lot of time worrying too much like it's there it's present and it matters for the story and you get the parts that matter but it doesn't really feel like it takes you down these like half-baked subplots where yes you, you there is there is something meaningful at the end of that tunnel but is it worth the amount of you know time and, and energy that's yeah. that's put into it over the course of the film where that could have been pared down or whatever it might be. Yeah. I understand that there is a reason, like I said, when I was the first talking about, like you do get something out of it by the end. It, it does contribute to the overall narrative and themes of the film. I just don't know if, if it was worth the time, especially earlier on trying to establish certain things that then it felt like weren't that important by the end. But again, we can get back into it later. Yeah. Um, Okay, as far as the cast goes, Scott, I think you've let on a lot of your feelings about Liza yeah. Scanlon's performance in the movie. You have anything else you want to say about her role here as Mila? Yeah, I mean, look, like I, I, I like I think we've been saying the whole time about this film is that it has the chance to be to to look a lot like other sick teenage girl coming of age dramas, and and in some ways it does, right? But I think that the performance that Eliza Scanlon does here is it it adds a slightly different flavor than you get from any other one. Right. And I think that 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 energy that she brings that mischievous chaotic energy she brings is trying to like find some way to be this free spirit in, in, in this body, like to use her language of the film, like this body is, it isn't, isn't enough or like it's too weak or whatever. I think she's, she kind of uses that, that terminology at some points in the film. And I find that a really interesting one because you can tell that her spirit doesn't really match the state that she's in. And and I think that I, I can't remember too many, other films in the genre quite like that, or at least not quite what at least doesn't feel quite like what Eliza Scanlon brings to the role. And I think that there's enough flavor there and enough to do for the character and, and what she brings to set it, to set it apart from whether it's Lady Bird, which isn't about, you know, a sick teenage girl, obviously it's slightly different. It, it makes it different from fault in our stars, which is just like so warped around these like two, two individuals cancers that it feels like, if anything, the cancer itself is like the main character in, in that story almost. Whereas this one, it feels like Eliza Scanlon is the main character, right? Cancer is obviously a huge part of her story here and it and it drives drives the plot along or at least the plot that's there. But ultimately, this character feels like it has a lot of agency. And I think that Eliza Scanlon brings that agency to the table and she does a great job with this film. And I look forward to her finally getting her lead, like a leading role breakthrough because I, I think it's 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 coming. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come soon enough. Yeah, thank goodness this didn't remind me of uh, The Fault in Our Stars, the the film starring Shailene Woodley and Christopher Plummer. But um, I I think that... (laughs) Good joke. I did did like uh, Eliza Scanlon's performance a lot here. And I I mean, I think, like, to my point earlier, it differs for me, at least from Little Women. Again, I don't know as much about Sharp Objects, but, like, there she is, like, the demure, like, gentle, kind, you know sister to a fault almost um like who just sort of takes all of her takes her sickness in stride um Mm. and and, you know just accepts it and i mean i think we we eventually get there with with milla but i think chaotic energy that that you used to describe her is a good way to to describe her because she's defined she She is defined in the film yeah 
and and like in that way, she makes you forget about her her sickness at times, which I think is is effective. Like, you know, th- there are moments like when they're going out to the party and stuff like this, where you just kind of see her as a you know a, a normal teenage girl trying to you know fit in the world trying to you know she, she's in this romance or she wants to be in this romance with toby wallace's character she wants friends she wants uh companions just anything to sort of stop her from thinking about her condition maybe but then there are these jarring moments right where she's all of a sudden thrown back into the reality of her sickness we see it at the very beginning of the movie right like she is talking to when she meets moses she's like you know lost in this conversation and then all of a sudden she starts having a nosebleed and it's like bang back to reality like i'm actually really sick and so that there's that constant tension going on and i think that she conveys that well of in her performance of like hiding the pain when she needs to but then um, making us believe it in those few moments where she sort of just has to, you know, come to terms with, with what reality is. So I, I think she cuts a really strong presence here. And yeah, maybe there are a few. I mean, I, I keep bringing up Lady Bird just because I think her her character in in particular, I think, has some some Lady Bird vibes. I mean, she keeps changing her look like Lady Bird does a little bit. The the hair and everything um, is a constant, of course. Part of that is because she has lost all of her hair due to due to chemo, but still she's going through a bunch of different wigs and, and hairstyles throughout the movie and stuff like that. But um, I think that it's it's a strong character, and I mean I I connected with the character, I liked the character, and that's the most important thing. And so I think in the end she nailed it. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. I don't know if uh, I have too much more to add to that, but then she did your job. Yeah. Um, as far as the supporting cast, Scott. Toby Wallace playing the love interest here is probably the one that people are going to be least familiar with out of the the top four. Obviously, Ben Mendelsohn has been in a lot of stuff. Ezzie Davis, most famous for um, being in The Babadook. Her, her, she was the lead in, in The Babadook, which is a movie a lot of people have seen. Um, but Toby Wallace, again, you probably haven't heard of him. Maybe if you're Australian, you have. But unless he doesn't you watch have a Wikipedia this. page, so that's probably oh, why you haven't heard of him. There you go. Unless you watch the Society, right? Where I actually think he he's really strong in that show too. Like he plays one of the big villains on the show, this guy named Campbell. But um, a, a different sort of role here. I think he he pulls it off well. But uh, what did you think about the three main supporting players here, Scott? Yeah, I think all of them are good. I, I think that maybe it's just the final note the film leaves you with, but I think I, I mean I'd have to call it Ben Mendelsohn in this. I think that as as iffy as I was in the first fifteen to twenty minutes or thirty or longer than that, thirty forty five minutes on what's going on with this character, I think you see enough there to set you up for the last twenty to thirty minutes of the film where you know, all of these supporting characters come together and all play a really important role. And I think that maybe it's because I, maybe it's because maybe I most relate with that character as like a man. I'm not, a, I mean, I'm not a father. I don't have a kid with, with cancer or anything, but I, I feel like I could most connect with that character. Like that was the most identifiable character to me in, in the film, just from personal uh, characteristics. And so maybe I connected more with him on that level, but basically the emotional roller coaster that, that, that particular character that, that the dad goes through towards the end of the film. His name's Henry, I think, in the film. And it, it really, it was perfect. I think I think it really nailed it. And then, the, again, the final the final scene, which I won't spoil, we won't talk about specifically in detail yet. I think he just nails it. Like, even the scene before that, where, the, you know, the kind of the big, almost the climax of the film, I think you call it, is the, is the penultimate scene. I think his, his actual 
display in that one. Again, it feels perfect to me. And so Toby Wallace is bringing something different to the table. And I mean, to some extent, S.E. Davis is as well, although I think that character is maybe a little bit more uh, anonymous, or at least in terms of the performance feels a, a little less unique, not because of anything that S.E. Davis does, but just because of the character feels a, a little bit. Um, I don't know if I'd say one note, but it feels less nuanced and less complex than some of these other characters. Yeah. Um, if we're on the if we're on the Lady Bird train, it definitely pales in comparison, I think, to Laurie yeah. Metcalf and, and Lady Bird. But. For sure. And I think that that's because Laurie Metcalf was given so much more to work yeah. with um, in, in that film. But maybe that's a separate conversation. But anyway, yeah, I, I think like, again, to bring something different to the table, I think that you'd, you probably would go with uh, my, oh, sorry, Moses. Yeah, Moses. Um, Toby Wallace, yeah. yeah, Toby Wallace's character here. But I think in terms of performance, I might I might give the edge to Ben Mendelsohn here, I, I think is again, just maybe, I don't know if he's underrated in Hollywood or not, but I think that probably doesn't get enough, enough love from my perspective. Yeah, no, I, I again, I think they're all really strong. I, I would, I would single out, I guess, Toby Walsh, just because I think, I don't know, he has a strange charisma here that makes you like this character, even when, you know, y- you feel like he's probably bad for Mila, right? He has, he has probably. a girlfriend who's definitely who's bad for her. Um, he, he, he is, but, but where they end up, I, I don't know. It becomes more ambiguous, but, um, right. I, I liked, I, I mean, I, I think again, you, you like the character, you, you're kind of rooting for them, even when maybe you shouldn't be. Um, and, and so I think that his performance works because I think that's what he's meant to do. And, and I actually like the relationship between him and, and Mila's parents, which I think, develops in an interesting way over the course of the movie because obviously yep. they they like reject him initially because of how old he is because of the fact that he's you know dealing drugs he's breaking into their house in the middle of the night to steal drugs uh, yes um yeah. and, and but then they sort of come to see him as like a necessary evil i guess right because their their daughter obviously cares so much about him and no matter what they do she's going to keep pursuing him um and and, and no matter what he does right no matter how bad he he might hurt, hurt her she's still gonna uh pursue him and so they kind of bite the bullet and are like hey come and live with us um and i think they come to appreciate him um in that time as like for, for what he means to their daughter and that in turn strengthens the relationship between the parents right because it seems like you know what's going on here is like the one thing that they have in common is that they both really love their daughter and the fact that she is sick and she is lonely and she is hurting is kind of um why you know coinciding with the fact that their marriage is splitting apart at the start of this movie but when this guy comes into her life when she you know kind of gets a new lease on life a little bit um and they finally decide to embrace that right and bring him into their house their relationship starts to starts to grow stronger as well and so i think there's some different layers going on there um which, which is interesting. And I think that this character of Moses, Toby Wallace's character is kind of at the heart of it all when you, when you really think about it. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think the performance is really important and I think he, uh, uh, you know, again, to use the same phrase, I think he nailed it. Um, and so I, you know, I, I look forward to seeing what he does next. Cause I mean, I, I thought that like the society, that show had a really strong cast in general. I think that was one of the, the strong elements of it was, you know, a lot of teen actors who, you hadn't really heard of before, but who were giving solid performances. And I mean, I think 
he's definitely one to single out. So it's nice to see that he's getting recognized elsewhere. Again, you know, he is Australian. This is an Australian film. I think it will take more for him to sort of cross into the, you know, mainstream over here in, in the States. But um, I think that on the strength of this performance and on the society, like I think he, he deserves to, to have it make a name for himself. Yep. I, yeah, I agree. I think it's a strong performance. And even though I think this character is again, going back to what I was saying earlier, probably the tropiest in potential. I think they are able to, to sort of subvert some of that and at least circumvent other parts of it as well, just with how strong the performance is and what they try to do with it towards the end of the film. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the plot a little bit more. And I do want to bring up the, so, so the interview that I read with, with Shannon Murphy, she was kind of talking about the idea that as the film goes on, Mila, it kind of becomes the parent, right? And yep. her, her, she is, she is really sort of the guiding hand over her parents and uh, over Moses to some extent. Um, and, and what we see in like the last, you know, half hour of the movie is her sort of embracing that um, her, her parents maybe are, are in a good, good place now that she um, is comfortable with, with leaving them. And also that like they have Moses now, again, to, to go back to the relationship between Moses and the parents, uh, at least Shannon Murphy, you know, indicated that uh, the ending is kind of meant to, to suggest that, Hey, uh, she, she has, made a choice, right? Because, because it is ambiguous and we're getting into spoilers now, obviously, but it is ambiguous how she ultimately passes away in the end. Yeah. I was going to um, ask you what you thought about that. Yeah. But, but so, so again, to echo Shannon Murphy's house, I don't, I don't want to just be a vessel for the director, but I mean, I think obviously go straight to the source. And I think I, I got well, a lot if, of what if she the said, direct, but, If the director has to explain to you what she meant by the film, it might be a problem, but yeah, I, no, I, I take I mean, your point. I, I think I think everything that she said I, I see in the film for the most part, but um, that basically we we get the scene right of her like trying to commit suicide basically with with Moses's help smothering her with the pillow, but that you know they don't go through with it, and so her her subsequent death under we don't understand the circumstances is kind of meant to to be like hey she has she's chosen to go out at, at this particular moment this isn't. Um, this isn't something that has been forced upon her. She has sort of chosen this particular moment. She has agency um, in her death. Yeah, to, to leave things because she feels like her parents are in a good place and she feels like her parents have accepted Moses now at this point and, and can care for Moses, right? Because Moses does not have the same family, strong family unit that, that Mila did to support her. Obviously, we, we have a few scenes with... Um, his mom and his little brother. And I mean, his little brother is, is definitely more connected with him, but um, the mom doesn't want anything to do with him. And so he's, he's basically homeless. Yeah. Um, it's very strange. I and, don't really understand. That's one of the things I don't really understand about the film, but yeah, but, but basically like part of, uh, you know, I, again, Mila is supposed to be kind of the parent here to, to her parents in the end, because they, they don't want to accept her fate necessarily but she has kind of i mean this is the most clear beth march comparison here right because sure that is the whole scene on the beach from little women is her saying to joe look i'm, I'm ready I, I, this is my time to go and that that is exactly what kind of what happens here in the last part of this movie she decides she's she's comfortable with um with with her her fate with dying uh and she's comfortable with the place where she is going to be leaving the the people that she loves and 
because of that, you know, her death is bittersweet in the end. And that's what that whole beach scene is about, right? Is her, you know, basically telling her parents, it's okay, right? Like, I, I'm ready. You're going to be okay. Um, and, you know, take care of Moses. Moses, you sort of look after them as well. Like, that, you know, there's, there's a mutual thing going on here. But I, I thought it, it worked pretty well, ultimately. What are your thoughts on sort of all these ideas here? Yeah, I, I think I was pretty clear earlier in my high level thoughts that I think the last half hour really works, right? I think it's the best part of the film. If I was just writing again, the second half of this film, I'd probably give it five stars. Honestly, I think it's really, really strong. The last 20 to 30 minutes where you see that sort of evolution of Mila's role, like her after, after their, her parents make the decision to let Moses, after her parents basically accept that, like, what they think is best for their child is not what's important. What their child wants with like the limited time that she has left, right. even if that is indefinite, like to them in their mind, it might be in, an indefinite amount yeah. of like small amount of time, but it's, in, it's not defined, right. That they put, take themselves out of the picture and their own like self, I don't know if you call it self-righteousness or, or the fact that they think they know what's best in the situation. Once they put that aside and, and focus on the needs or the desires or basically what's going to make their daughter the happiest is and bring Moses into the house, et cetera, and really kind of have that come together. And you have these moments where the relationship between Moses and her parents continues to evolve. The relationships between Moses and Mila continue to evolve. All those relationships are really, I think reaching, you know, coming to full fruition there. And that scene, I think that everything just clicks and, and you do see this evolution of Mila becoming sort of the, main person in the household the guiding hand i think is the way that you described it and i think that that's no clearer than you know the scene i guess is it her birthday it's not clear to me exactly what the scene is um yeah, I think so. yeah where she is where they're all together yeah. where they're all together like literally every every character the music film. teacher the little brother the <laughs> yeah neighbor, exactly yeah. it's very confusing how all these people came it's together like yeah. yeah exactly uh but yeah i think that that it, it paints a really clear picture there and I, and i really like the fact that they tell the last couple moments out of order here right like the last 30 minutes are, are out of order because you get the mm -hmm. beach scene last even though it's obviously chronologically not the last moment in the film and i really like that i think it works really well and i think it's really important that she's telling her father all these things and not her mother right and i think that that's really important for that relationship um and you know obviously we haven't talked about this at all but her mother also dealing with her own mental health uh difficulties there as well i think is is a big part of the film um and maybe one of the reasons why she has to parent in a very particular way uh, to to both of them, right? And I think that final scene is probably my favorite in the film. Um, a great, a great final shot. Add that to the list of films with great final shots in them. And then I think the the scene, you know, the climactic scene, the scene where she, her, you know, her body is discovered, and it's ambiguous whether or not she has just died of her own. Uh, I I think my take is that she like that she asks him to smother smother. Like that that's my take. About I'll, I'll just throw it out oh, there. Right, like, okay. I, so you I, think they went? They did go through go through with it after the failed attempt that we see. So yeah, so they have the failed attempt, and then they have sex. Um, her baby tooth falls out, which is such a weird moment. It's oh. her innocence being lost. You know, I thought oh, I, I did know. think it was too on yeah. the nose. Yeah. I wrote in my letterbox review, like nothing says take my virginity like losing my last baby tooth. <laughs> like, well, look, it's still better. Like to bring up the fault in our stars, it's still better than the 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 
love scene from that, which occurs right after they go to the Anne Frank Museum, which is one of the most tasteless things I've ever seen in a film. But yeah, that's how. Go on. Um, yeah, no, not not at all. Um, anyway, but no, because I, I think because because right, like the the final moment, right, the final moment where you know she's okay with going out is when she wakes up in the middle of the night. She walks through the house. It's like early morning. Actually, I guess it's not even the middle of the night. It's like super early in the morning because the sun is rising, and she goes. She basically walks through the whole house. You get this shot of of um toby wallace's moses sleeping in the bed and then she walks to the house sees her parents sleeping in the same bed together presumably you know content with everything having a good day and i think that's where it cuts forward to the morning and you don't immediately realize that she's dead actually but then it becomes really it comes clear pretty quickly well, I think. yeah i was just gonna say one thing i thought was interesting and i did want to get your thoughts was when during the discovery that she's dead it seems like when the mom goes off to the room, it seems like Ben Mendelsohn has stopped and he like he's like realized what has happened. Like he, yeah. you, he gets this look on his face. And I don't know, I guess I was a little curious as to like how like how how would he know what what, what made him like realize that, oh, hey, my daughter is actually in there dead. Well, I think it's the fact that she's not awake because usually because I mean, my understanding, you don't really see this in the film, but my understanding is that, like pretty much every day she's like she's up before them because she's in so much pain from yeah. everything that's going on. It's just like a very unusual experience. And the fact, and I think the way that Moses is acting is also concerning um, to him. And I think it would be too, too right? That's obviously. Fair, yeah. So I think it's, I think it's a moment of like, it's like, it's kind of like just like an, Oh shit moment. Like you don't know what's happened, but you have this really deep fear. And then obviously that fear gets confirmed really quickly. And I actually really like that, that touch. I think it really, it works really well because it's one of those things, right? Like they've been on cloud nine for like a day or two. And I think also a big part of it too, it going back to this final scene, which you don't know, you don't get this when you're watching the film immediately is that Mila has told him that she's going to die, right? Yeah. He knows that. And then making, once you see that final scene and he, and you realize he knows that, I think it explains his reaction really clearly. So like even the hint, right? Even the hint that this might happen is going to set alarm bells off in his mind, I think. So I, I again, I, I think all of that ties together really nicely. I think it, Ben Mendelsohn is at his best in the scene as well. And again, I, I, I don't think that there's a better, you know, 30, 35 minutes in a movie so far this year than the, than the final 30, 35 minutes in this one. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and again, to back to my earlier point, it is like the, the moment where you feel like the director where that Shannon Murphy has the most control over the yeah. story, right? The, the pacing returns to normal, right? Cause the pacing is really weird. I feel like in the first part of the movie, like you're, yeah. you're just jumping from random scene to random scene. And like all, all that's guiding you is again, these title cards on the horrible screen, title cards. Like, yeah. Um, yeah not, it, it's really weird. Cause like, movie, I feel like most, I don't know how experienced or inexperienced Shannon Murphy is, but um, she, I think, I, I think one of the things that you see in a lot of novice or less experienced filmmakers is that they have this great idea for a movie and they do a great job for the first two acts of the film and they have no freaking clue how to land, how to land the plane. And she had like, oh, yeah, sure. This, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree. Midsommar, total mess at the end. Uh, <laughs> <Shut> <laughs> uh, no, I, it's one of those things where like, yeah, her, I mean, people said that about hereditary to your point. And I think she has the opposite problem here where like, I don't know if I know how to take this plane off, but I know yeah. exactly how I'm going to land it. And, and boy, does she land it uh, at the end. So yeah, it's an, it's an interesting phenomenon. I don't think you see it too often, to be honest. Yeah, no, she, she definitely sticks the landing. And I think, um, 
I think I'm going to make a letterbox list of movies where Eliza Scanlon tells her loved ones that she's ready to die while she's on a beach because we now have two, right? This, this is the second one, um, yeah. which is kind of, kind of funny, but um, I imagine that list yeah. will stop there, but maybe her, the next 50 years of her career will prove me wrong. Who knows? Who knows? Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that the way that th these last few scenes are, are played out and just her coming to terms with her fate, really works. I mean, and, and Shannon Murphy talked about in an interview too, how this is kind of a real phenomenon with terminally ill, like teenagers that not just their parents, but even their doctors will like become reticent to accept their like death and like will over medicate them and keep giving them a lot of, uh, medication. Yeah. And ma maybe there's something there with the fact that, that, uh, Ben Mendelsohn is like, uh, you know, drugging his, his wife for like for the first half of the movie and, and even uh even moses later he's giving him drugs but yeah. he also um, self-administers drugs too and himself yeah. yeah um but that but doctors will like keep giving them the medication to ease the pain when the the teenagers are like hey uh, okay I, i'm it's okay i'm ready to go so it's nice to see that kind of approach to to you know a, a teenager a terminally ill teenager dying of like them them having agency again over their fate even if we did just see a similar thing with the same actress in little women like i, I think that um it, it's still refreshing to see yeah i mean this time the scarlet fever didn't take her it was the cancer the fever has not weakened her heart um yeah, truly yeah but scott i think that's about it for our discussion of baby teeth so i think we can move into our wrap-up now yeah uh, i think i know what you're gonna say but what is your favorite scene or moment from this film yeah i mean i'll choose something different just because i've already said that it is my favorite scene so just to I'll add choose in what i'm gonna say well i don't know what you're gonna say but it's actually gonna come from the first half of the film because it's my favorite scene from the first half of the movie and it's a shot in a bathroom where she, she it's one of the few days where Mila goes to school. She's wearing a wig because her chemo started again. She's lost all her hair. She's in this bathroom. A girl comes into the bathroom, asks her to try on her wig so she can see what it's like if she put extensions in her hair yeah, for the prom. And the scene, like most of the scene is, is shot with, I mean, there's two angles. One shot is the girl trying on and in the background you have, you see Eliza Scanlon sort of just taking this in as if this is some sort of like joke. For this girl, I mean, it's not a joke. She's like genuinely it's dress trying. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's dress. That's a great way to put it. It's dress up. It's not a joke, because it, but it's dress up. She's like, oh well, this look good on me if I wear mm. something like this to the prom. Whereas, like, it is. It, it's a very different meaning for her. And I felt that this scene, even though it lacked pretty much any dialogue from Eliza Scanlon here, was extremely, extremely powerful. And I think this was kind of the first moment in the film where I was like, all right, actually, you know what? I'm really, I'm really hooked by this. If this is the direction the film is going to go, to your point about the serious moments being more effective than the comedic ones, if this is the direction the film is going to go, then I'm here for it. Like this is going to work, and it did work because that's the direction they ultimately did go in the final act of the film. No, I totally agree. That's that's a great moment, and and like you said, that is one of the first moments that grabbed me, and I was like, okay, hey, maybe this is like where the potential for this movie is, and what yep. they really. Uh, hit home in the in the last act. I think I am going to choose from the birthday party scene, and, and I kind of like I, I kind of am mad at myself a little bit for getting uh, touched by the scene because I feel like we have seen variations on it before. I kept thinking I kept thinking about Brad Pitt in Moneyball when he takes his daughter to the music store and she starts playing the song and singing for him there, and he gets all uh, touched. That we see like a very similar scene here where. Um, Ben, where where the mom? Uh, I can't remember her name is, but she's playing the Anna. Um, 
piano. Anna is playing the piano and uh, Mila is playing the violin at the birthday party for everyone. And like, we, there's it close, you know, we get a close up of Ben Mendelssohn kind of like reacting and, and realizing, oh, hey, like these are, I love these people. Like, what, what was I doing? Like, this is the moment the pregnant neighbor or whatever. I, I mean, I think he realizes it before this, right? Because he kisses the pregnant neighbor yeah, and then yeah. it's like, Oh wow, I shouldn't have done that. And like, there's no, nothing more of, of their like having an affair or anything like that for the rest of the movie. Um, yeah. But here he, it really sort of washes over him and you see that the impact of like, Hey, I actually really care about these people. And it's a really, I mean, again, even though we've seen, uh, moments like this before it's it's a moving moment and so i i thought that that was what where the movie started to really you know begin it's it's very effective crescendo so um yeah, yeah good scene it is a great scene really it, it they tease it through parts of the film the whole time she's yeah. like mom will you play with me mom will you play with me and th that's another subplot almost like her mom won't play piano anymore i think related to this i don't know what the deal is exactly behind it but I assume it's related to some sort of like relationship she'd had with the music teacher. I don't know, but um, maybe, yeah. it's teased through the whole film and it, and it works and it, it, yeah, maybe it's a little bit cheap. I don't know, but it, it does. It, it hits you. Maybe it earns it. Yeah, maybe for it sure. I don't know. For sure. Um, barely earns it, I would say, but uh, Scott, let's put a score on it. What would you give baby teeth out of 10? 8.2 really recovers from okay. a slow start. Nice score. Uh, I'm giving it a 7.2, uh, just just a point lower than you. I, I I do think it is really strong by the end. Yeah. But you know, can't ignore that that first half or so of the movie, which I think, um, you know, to to use one of our favorite phrases that we sometimes jokingly yeah. use. Although I actually don't think it's true. I think Shannon Murphy has at least one other film, but it feels yeah. like it's the first time filmmaking. <laughs> um, in, in the, Dude, in the, the joke is over now. You're saying it for real now. We we've come full circle yeah. more now. The people saying that. We're, we are self-parodying, but um, yeah, yeah 7.2, it's still really good. And yeah. if you think it looks like something that you will like, you'll probably like, and like, if you like Lady Bird, if you like The Way, Way Back, if you like some of these other type coming of age movies in a similar vein, I think, I think you will go for this, even if it's definitely not as on the same level of quality wise, I think it's those movies. It's, it's interesting to watch. Yeah. Um, so there you go, Scott. That is our review of Baby Teeth. We're going to take a short break now, and after the break, we have a couple of news items for you. Most prominently, of course, uh, the great AMC mask-wearing scandal of 2020. We'll have all of our thoughts on that uh, after this break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, Scott, we do have a couple of news items to get to, but I think we got to start with the big one, right? I, I wrote the newsletter article about it this week, and then like moments after I completed it, AMC actually reversed course. As I joked in the newsletter article, I think they were just so scared of what this hit piece was going to do to them. I think this was going to this was going to be the one that finally broke the uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, so they they did the right thing ultimately and changed course. But of course. For about, oh gosh, I don't know, 12 hours maybe, 12 to 15 hours, the internet was really lit up with um, the fact that AMC came back and, and said, hey, we're going to be reopening our theaters um, in mid-July, coinciding again with the movies being released, with big releases coming out again. 
And we're not going to require you to wear a mask because, to quote the president, the CEO of, of AMC, we don't want to get involved in a political controversy. Um, if you want to know my, my, I guess, more eloquent thoughts on this, you can read, uh, you can subscribe to our newsletter in the, the link in the description. Um, but I think that we're on the same page as this, Scott. Um, do you want to tell us more about the whole situation, your thoughts on it, and you know the yeah. fact that they did eventually, again, 12 to 15 hours later, say, jokes, we, uh, we realized this is probably a really stupid idea, and we're going to make you wear, wear masks. Yeah, no. So uh, look, it's one of those things where I was sitting here thinking about this on Thursday when it when it all when it all started to go down, and I was like, "This isn't surprising at all." Like I read, the, so I, I I read the original email about reopening, and they and they say in the email that you're not going to be required to wear a mask. Uh, the the employee like our employees will, but but and you're strongly encouraged to, but not required. And they don't have anything in in that particular statement. Uh, which ha- which included the CEO's comments because that was in a, in an article with like an interview for with Variety and then like 15 minutes later you see the Variety tweet out this quote and I'm like oh my god why on <laughs> earth would you say that like I, Scott like no one would have said anything like this would not have been a big deal if that quote hadn't come out like mm-hmm. it, to me it would have been a big deal like to us it would have been a big deal to people in you know certain spheres whatever that care I mean that you should care about this stuff like anyone who cares about this kind of stuff it would be a big deal but the stink was caused by by then saying that that for some yeah. reason caring about the health and safety of yourself your loved ones and people around you is for some reason in this state and at this day and age a political controversy which is and, and here's psychotic. the thing it, it is but also they're not wrong right because it has been create it has been turned into a political controversy by sure. the president by no, his i'm not denying it at all but yeah, that like, like it was a dumb thing for them to call it that, right? Like yeah. they, they should it be validates taking a all those people. Stand as, yeah, right, and, it, yes. and it validates the ridiculous opinion that it's you know a, it's a political opinion to say that you shouldn't have to wear a mask. Like it's insane. It's insane to me. I just don't get it. And I guess it's a good thing that the CEO came out and said this like dumb, dumb statement because the backlash on this was so strong that within like 18 hours, I, I think the statement came out like six o'clock one day and then like 11 the next day or whatever, like 18 hours later, boom, done. Like, like complete was- reversal of the policy. And I think one thing that actually did help it too is give some credit to Alamo draft house, which you're a big fan of. You went there for a couple films. I believe last summer, I have not had the pleasure yet of going to an Alamo draft house, although I, I'm sure I will uh, sooner or later. And they came out and just took a real cheap shot <laughs> at AMC and uh, Regal and Cinemark, who all should be noted as much as as much heat as AMC was getting. Mm-hmm. Like the reason why I wasn't surprised that they weren't requiring people to wear a mask is because Regal and Cinemark had already come out and said they weren't requiring their patrons to wear a mask. So I was fully expecting this this stance from AMC. And that's why I wasn't surprised. And then reading the statement, that's when things blew up, right? But yeah, Alamo came out Friday morning saying you're going to be required to wear a mask except when you're eating and drinking, which to me feels like an empty statement because most people Alamo draft us are eating and drinking the entire movie. So I don't really know what that means, but the fact that they use that. Even I who like don't do food and drink at movies, like, you know, they bring you a freaking menu and like they have, you know, I mean, that's the whole experience. That's the whole Alamo draft house experience. So to me, that felt like a, like a slightly empty statement from Alamo draft house. But at the same time, they took the time to take a cheap shot at their bigger at their bigger brothers in the movie theater uh, cinema industry, Fair play. and they should have because and they deserved it. And I don't know if that had any factor whatsoever 
an AMC shift in decision. I imagine just the, the social media backlash they got uh, out of it just the night before was probably enough for them to reverse course. But they did reverse course. And they said that they were going to listen to their guests and they have the full support of their scientific advisors. I'm like, yeah, no shit. You have the full support of your scientific advisors because all of science says you should wear a freaking mask. <laughs> yeah, you mean you had scientific advisors and you still decided not to do a mask policy in the first yeah, place? Yeah, exactly. I was just like, this is so stupid and inane. I cannot believe like they just sound so dumb. Like they're like, yeah. they're like, they're oh, like we're doing the heroic thing and requiring a mask. I'm like, no, you're just fixing your mistake. And I think as of the time of our recording, I believe that Regal has also changed their policy and now will require their patrons to wear a mask. I could be wrong about that because I, I went and tried to fact check that and I couldn't find a bunch of I would have expected a bunch of articles about it, but I couldn't find actual dedicated articles. about it. I just saw a tweet about it, so I could be wrong there. But I imagine it's probably only a matter of time that if Regal hasn't already and if Cin I know Cinemark hasn't yet, uh, I think it's only a matter of time that they also reverse their stance. And if people are so mad that they have to wear a mask in a movie theater for two hours that they don't go to the movie theater fine then you're going to stay home and you're not going to infect other people with your you know with your germ with your coronavirus germs and we're all going to be safer for it and that's just the reality of it and here's the other thing too right like these theaters have said we're going to be doing like 50 percent capacity or whatever in in our theaters so you could like take your mask off when you sit down in the movie like honestly because you're probably no, going to be do not listen to scott harvey Keep your mask on during the during the film. Okay, but my my point is that also fifty percent capacity just, is not like like that. That's only every other seat. That's not that's not six that's feet true. apart. Yeah. No. Well, I think they're going to be maintaining social distancing as best as possible. But my point was these people who are so virulently anti-mask, they were probably just gonna like if you're yeah. if you're so anti-mask, then like you just take your mask off anyway when you get into the theater. Like you shouldn't do that. I, I agree with Scott that you shouldn't do that. Um, but like we're what we were really only talking because because AMC is probably not going to enforce that, right? Like that. I mean, you know, I mean, look, wearing like, a mask it's going to be really hard to enforce. Yeah, yeah. And and so what we're really only talking about is wearing a mask when you walk into the movie, when you walk into the theater, get your concessions, whatever, right, and then you go space, sit down. Yeah. Like, we're talking yeah. about like 10 minutes of wearing a mask. So if you are, if you are so anti-mask that you cannot even do that, then like, you're just an idiot. Like, I'm sorry you are, but, um, but yeah, no, my, my mom was reading me something out of the newspaper. And I mentioned this in the, the article too, that they, there was like a scientific study or something about where they, where they measured different activities on a scale of like, here is what has like the highest uh, percentage-wise yeah. probability of spreading coronavirus. You know, I don't know exactly what the full scale was, but like if you something like eating in a restaurant outside or like even going to a public pool, right, where they were like one or two, there were very minimal risk uh, of spreading the virus because you're outdoors. I think it's yeah, the, the outdoors is the big part of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but going to a movie theater was a six. Right. And, and like you, I I mean, I think it's easy to understand why it's not just the fact that you're indoors. It's the you know, the eating and drinking element. The fact that, you know, movie you're theater breathing that, like there for two hours. I mean, yeah, and the, the clean, you know, we've been to movie theaters enough in our lives to know that cleaning is often sporadic. Like, you know, the optimal. Movie theaters are not always the cleanest places, um, and, and so yeah, it's it's easy to see why. I mean, I, I do think they're going to be taking extra precautions for sure during the yeah. when when they Maybe, reopen. But it's still but, like your local seventeen-year-olds cleaning your movie theaters, and like, look, like, yeah. Do I think that they're going to make like corporate AMC is going to make some attempt, but like, 
is that in practice really going to happen that carefully between, especially between movies, right? Maybe overnight it's different, but I don't know. Yeah. But ultimately I think like if, if their plan in the beginning was by saying, we're not going to require you to wear a mask was like to not lose the business of the people, the, the anti-mask people. I mean, I think that was a dumb play first of all, because I think there are more pro-mask people among the people who will be going to the actual movie theaters and it just seemed like they didn't even consider the alternative that, hey, if we don't require people to wear a mask, we're actually going to lose the pro-mask people, right? Uh, it's not like the, the pro-mask people yeah. are just going to be like, because they're okay, not making fine. a political just statement. wear a mask and it'll be okay. Yeah, yeah no, Because exactly. the pro-mask people aren't trying to make a political statement. They're trying yeah. to keep the well, like secure the well-beings of themselves, the people they love, and also people that are around them. Because to, to, to those, to, to people like me, and I assume you as well, like, Wearing a mask is not me saying, "Oh, look, I'm I'm like a bleeding lib." You know, I'm a snow I'm a snowflake millennial over here. No, it's just because I care about the well being of the people that I interact with. It's not it's not a political statement. Yeah, exactly, and and that is obviously how they were viewing it when they developed this whole policy. And you know, luckily they very quickly came to their senses once you know yeah. cooler heads prevailed. And yeah, for my for all my Tennessee fans out here, this was their version of Shiano Sunday in terms of how quickly the internet turned on them, and subsequently how quickly they then reversed course. Uh, so that that was that was pretty funny to watch. But I, I'm glad that this happened because you know for for movie fans like us who are also not science deniers and a big flex here guys like I, I, you know I, i'm not a science denier like i know that that's pretty vain of me to say yeah. but um, i used to be on the but, fence but now i i don't deny science yeah. anymore so we, we were really we were really like conflicted about this right because like we're talking about the difference between like getting coronavirus and like you know or spreading coronavirus and like seeing you know some of these big movies that we've been anticipating all year and have you know been anticipating even more that yep. we have been now that we have been like starved Deprived, of them yeah, for three yeah. months or whatever. So luckily we don't have to make that choice anymore. It seems. And uh, like, Maybe. I yeah. think that I will be comfortable wearing a mask and going to the theater on July 31st when tenant is released. But will you feel that way? If the people on either side of you at, in tenant take off their mask as soon as they walk into the theater, I don't have a problem with asking them to put their mask back on. I imagine you might experience a uh, relapse of our uncut gems. I was going to say, a, a, a re, uh, uh, yeah, exactly, of what happened to us at the, the uncut gems thing. But you know what? Uh, that is that is a risk I'm willing to take. I will not get up and leave. I will sit there and take my ice down the back of my shirt like a man. But um, <laughs> like that, a man, that, that is the news um, with with uh, with AMC and the the mask. Uh, policy and all of the controversy over that. Again, if you want to read more about my thoughts, you can check out the newsletter. I mean, I think it's one of my one of my best works yet, to be to be quite honest. So yeah. please go and check it out if you haven't yet. But a scathing um, takedown of AMC, all movie theaters, and Trump supporters as well. Yeah, uh, sorry, I got a little political, but um, it's hard not to. But why you got to make it political? <laughs> moving on from that. Uh, one other piece of news I did want to talk about before we closed um, is some some developments with my number one most anticipated movie of 2020. Remember when we did that, Scott, like two years ago when we did our most anticipated movies of 2020? Yeah, that, was, okay. that was fun. Um, yeah. I don't know how many of them are actually going to be coming out now, but uh, on that note, it seems like maybe there Trolls is World Tour. 
Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> it, it seems like maybe there is hope for my number one most anticipated movie of the year, perhaps being seen in 2020. That movie was, of course, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is uh, going to be the new film directed and written by Aaron Sorkin based on uh, the true story of a bunch of people who were arrested at the 1968 Democratic Convention for protesting the Vietnam War, um, uh, among, among other things, I think. Um, and obviously, you know, anything with, with Aaron Sorkin attached to it is going to get me excited. Double that one. It seems to be a courtroom drama. So this was this was definitely on uh, near the top of my was at the top of my list for most anticipated uh, movies of the year. And now uh, the latest news is that uh, Paramount is apparently in the final talks of selling this movie to yeah. Netflix, which means seems like, that it seems like it's all but done. When I actually read the article, it seems yeah, like it pretty much. That's what up. I, that's what I saw in the article too, but it yeah. seems like, uh, therefore, I mean, look, this doesn't preclude it having a theatrical release. Like Netflix could do what they did with the Irishman or, or marriage story, um, and, and show it in some theaters. But I, I don't think it's going to be getting the same theatrical run, the same scope of theatrical run, maybe that it would have been getting uh, if it was under under the Paramount label. Um, it won't because AMC, Regal, etc. won't show Netflix movies. So it, it inherently won't be getting the same theatrical run. Yeah, f fair enough. But uh, but anyway, it, like I said, it doesn't preclude theatrical runs. Like if you sure. have an in indie theater, like that's yeah. where I saw the Irishman, right? Like I went to the yeah. indie theater, they were showing Marriage Story as well. But yeah. We're gonna. It's gonna be getting less screens for sure, but it's gonna be available on Netflix. It seems for for streaming. Scott, we we had some conversation about this between the two of us, and maybe what this means. You, you had some concerns about maybe is this um, disappointing for? Is this discouraging regarding the quality of the movie? Since Netflix is buying this after it's already a finished product, right? This is not something that Netflix has been developing from the beginning, like The Irishman, like Roma. You know these these you know, big movies that they've put out there are actually really good. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I don't share the same concern just because I have, you know, tremendous, maybe, maybe somewhat misguided faith in, in Aaron Sorkin and, and his ability to put out um, a, a quality film. But, you know, in terms of Oscars implications as well, I think this is interesting to think about because um, this is probably, I mean, you would think at least on paper, this is an Oscar contender, right? Like Sorkin, yeah, definitely. generally his yeah. films um, are, I like he got an Oscar nomination for writing his last movie, Molly's Game, which was his directorial debut. He won for The Social Network. He got nominated for Steve Jobs, I think. So he, he's on a roll here in terms of um, the uh, getting Oscar nominations. And with this being based on a true story and the political implications, I think you have yeah. to point to this as an Oscar candidate. But, you know, you, you made the point, Scott, too, that Netflix already has a couple of movies that, it, you know, are seem to be surefire Oscar candidates. One of them is Defy Bloods that we talked about last yep. week. The other is Mank, which is a David Fincher film that's coming out about the screenwriter of uh, of Citizen Kane. So uh, obviously that sounds like Oscar bait right there. Is, is Netflix trying to go all in or is yep. maybe this a strategic play from from both parties, maybe Paramount sh shipping off something that they don't feel like is going to to be as successful as maybe they had originally hoped, and Netflix maybe banking on it, getting some streaming eyes, even if it's not very good. I mean, like we saw with The Lovebirds, for example, like that movie wasn't very good, but more people saw it because it was on Netflix than they would have uh, if it was in theater. So is, it, is Netflix taking that kind of approach to it? I don't know. There's a lot to think about here. What do you think? What are your other thoughts, Scott? Yeah, I think that there's there's two main ways that I think that you can read this. One is that 
and and they're not necessarily they can't I guess they can't both they could both be true so they're not mutually exclusive and wh- one of those takes is that Par- Paramount sees this film I have no idea we don't know what the budget of this film is but Molly's game was like 30 to 50 million dollars I can't remember what it was somewhere in that range which is pretty expensive like it's a pretty expensive film uh for what Aaron Sorkin's doing and especially something like Molly's game, like uh, social network was always going to be a bigger film. Even Steve jobs, always going to be a bigger yeah. film. Molly's game was, was small. And I think, I think it made its budget back, uh, but it, it wasn't a huge money making endeavor for, for Paramount in that instance. And I think that they're probably seeing the writing on the wall that this is probably going to have the same fate, like an anti Vietnam war movie. Like, I mean, cool. It's like Aaron Sorkin fans are going to be there for it. hundred percent. Like, you, you're going to be there for it. I'd be there for it for sure, too. Like it was on it would have been on my uh, most anticipated movies list if, if you hadn't put it on yours. But at the end of the day, there's a ceiling on that, right? Like people people probably don't care that much about the subject matter, to be honest. And I mean, Aaron, I think Aaron Sorkin fans are like a, are like a highly vocal minority of, fa- of fans, right? Like they they're loud, but they're not the most populous group of people. Uh, if, the, if there the is world. such a thing as as a known screenwriter, though, I will say, like, Aaron Sorkin is probably near the top of the yeah. list. Like, David in terms Boyer. of people who are known specifically for their their screenwriting. D- David Goyer, yes, but, like, Sorkin had, like, people know that Sorkin, people know the name Sorkin and that his his particular style, right? The, the walk and talk, the fast-paced dialogue, the, yeah. you know, Sorkin, he is a brand, and I think sure. he is, again, as much as a person who is known for their screenwriting can be, I think he is recognizable in that way yeah but the thing is is he's not always positively recognized in that way right like some people really don't like that that his like the dialogue in his movies are so unrealistic yeah because because they aren't because they aren't realistic um but that's i mean that's one of the things that we like that we like about them and that's that's fair enough but yeah that's a fair point like he's very recognizable but i don't know how many people go to the movie theaters to to see that their favorite screenwriters next work right like this doesn't happen that much Uh, even 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 between us like very rarely would we have a conversation around like, oh, the screenwriter's new film is out. Let's go check it out. I mean, we're that way about directors, sure, but a little bit different when it comes to screenwriters. Um, but yeah, probably the most notable screenwriters besides Sorkin are going to be other people who are like known for writing and directing, right? You, people, someone like a Chris Tarantino, Nolan. Tarantino, yeah. T- yeah, Tarantino, Nolan, Wes Anderson, like, your whole list of, of writer-director auteurs, mm-hmm. right? Like those are the people. Um, and, and Aaron Sorkin's entering that category, right? Like, he's, he's, he's becoming more of a director, et cetera. So I think that there's one perspective in that Paramount is just trying to sell this because whatever they pay like whatever they've paid for it budget wise there's no way they're making it back in corona like post coronavirus world so quickly right and maybe they look at their release calendar and all right we got we have top gun 2 we have uh coming coming to america the like that sequel to stylized with, with the number 2 with Eddie Murphy etc they have a quiet place part 2 they so they have that they, they have like a few like they have some bigger like some bigger money makers in there right like those yeah, have very target audience money, yeah. And a couple of those, I mean, Quiet Place Part Two, maybe it's good enough to get Oscar nominations. I don't know, but it, it is weird that they, it seemed like they were selling off an asset that was like probably their main awards contender for the year. Like, I think that I would still put Trial of the Chicago Seven as more likely to be getting Oscars attention than a Quiet Place Part Two, just because Sorkin is just such a such an Oscars known quantity, especially at least when it comes to writing, right? And the subject matter is is Oscar baity, I think. Um, I mean, and and in this year especially too, right where. Yeah. Yep. the Oscar contenders are going to be at a premium almost. You, you would think like, you know, the five bloods just came out last week and, and people are talking about, Oh, Hey, this is front runner for best picture. Whatever. Cause, cause we don't even know what is going to be coming out of the, the original yep. movies that you would have tapped as Oscar winner. So, you know, it, it's going to be 
probably a less competitive field, you would have to say, even with them bumping the deadline back to, to February now, um, like it's going to be a less competitive field than you would normally get. So you would think that Paramount might want to take a flyer on, you know, just, just seeing how it does. But I don't know. Again, in the end, my trust in Sorkin is always going to win out. I think. Right. So I think that the one view of that is that it's not very good, right? So like if this was going to be their awards contender, it's not very good. They want to get rid of it. They're not going to make money off of it anyway. Another view, I think, is just that Paramount, so Viacom CBS, which is Paramount's parent company, is like, they're not, like, it's coronavirus, right? Like CBS, uh, you know, cable TV, or not cable, I guess, broadcast TV network, their ad numbers are about to, like, plummet because the up, as soon as these, these most recent upfronts run out, uh, it's not like ad, you know, these marketing, you know, any, any big company that's going to be spending the big, you know, millions and millions of dollars on marketing, that same amount of cash is not going to be there after coronavirus, like people are just not going to be paying that much for ads, right? Because people are, you know, resource constrained right now to maybe use too much of an economics term there. Like, it's not that that they're they don't have it's not that the companies don't have money to spend on ads. It's that the consumers don't have money to spend on buying the products that are being advertised. And so you're going to see that ad revenue drop. Honestly, Paramount has just been on a terrible run. Overall, I think for like the past year, year and a half on on their on their films and, and getting returns on their films. And so I think an alternative view, which I think the two of us are maybe inclined to lean toward, is that maybe this film is good, maybe this film is great, maybe it's not good at all. But that's probably like that maybe isn't factoring into the decision here yeah, by Paramount. And really what they want is just to guarantee that they're going to get their money back on this film. Because like we saw with, with with the Lovebirds, Netflix is willing to pay that budget, you know, buy out buy out the budget of the film, pay the pay the you know previous distributor, in this case Paramount as well back the money that they spent on the film and whatever marketing money they probably spent on the film up to that point and take it and use it for their platform. And I think Netflix is particularly interested in this because I think that this year to go back to go back to this point you were making this year, especially Netflix wants to show up with every major contender for the Oscars. It's something they could feasibly do, right? Maybe they don't have enough movies to actually do this, but look, they had two of the three, you know, two of the three or four big contenders last year for best picture, probably two of the four, right? They had marriage story. They had the Irishman Irishman and marriage story both fell off by the end of the year. hundred percent. It was like a two horse race between 1917 and parasite yeah, by the end, but they were there, but they were there, right? They were there, especially early on in the season. And I think Netflix wants to show up, you know, this year again with, you know, two, three, four of, of like the biggest contenders, people who actually have a shot at winning is the trial of Chicago seven that maybe, maybe not, but Netflix wants to build that prestige brand so they can get more directors to come make the films so they can continue to get Oscar nominations. I think this is all part of the long-term play of Netflix trying to legitimize themselves in the movie production business. They aren't, they aren't producing this particular film. They're just distributing it. Uh, if that still does go through, but it's all part of their bigger, bigger process here and trying to trying to get to that point. So I'm inclined to believe that second take, but it's also possible the first take too. I don't know. It's, it's possible. This film is getting sold off because like the lovebirds, it may just not be very good, but I'm hopeful that it's not that. Yeah, of course, I, I am hopeful about this as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an interesting conversation. I, I, I agree with you. I think I lean, lean towards this is strictly based on money, but we will see. The The jury will have to decide eventually. Nice, nice. But with that, it's a, court, it's a, it's a legal you. drama, so uh, there you go. It is, yeah. I, I happen to know a few of this. But uh, with that, Scott, I think that will conclude um, this episode of Some Like It, Scott. 
Um, before I launch into my wrap-up spiel, I do want to announce that uh, in two weeks, we are going to be doing something very special for our 100th episode of Some Like It Sky. Technically, next week is our 100th episode, even though it will be episode 99, because we did start with episode zero, as I'm sure diehard fans of the podcast will remember. Um, but for our actual uh, 100th episode celebration, we're going to be doing that on episode 100, which is in two weeks from, from now. But for that episode, we're going to be doing the granddaddy of all countdown lists episodes as we are going to be counting down each of our lists for our top 10 favorite movies of all time. So, yeah, this this will be uh, a lot of fun, I think. Uh, Scott, have you given any thought to your list so far or is oh, this yeah. just too, too gargantuan a task for you to even fathom at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a gargantuan task, and I, I, I've i made a first draft of, of my list. Well, I guess technically a second draft because I drafted it, and then I've I've revised it a little bit. And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, man, I've my my the scope of movies that I've watched is so focused in the last decade that it's... Let's just put it this way. They're going to get more uh, time diversity in the films on your list, I am sure, than they will on mine. Yeah, no, uh, th- that is fair. Um, I was thinking about that earlier when I was telling my parents about that we were going to be doing this for our episode, I was like, I don't know how many old movies, like, I wonder what the oldest movie on Scott's list is going to be. Um, We will see, but um, the way there's a film in the nineties, there's a film in the nineties in there. Wow. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it it depends on if you count outside the top 10. I, so it's not final, but like, I mean, yeah, I have some, Look, I have one of the films from the seventies in there that, like, most people would consider one of the greatest of all time, probably. But like that in my top twenty, Ish- right? Maybe not, I don't know if it'll make my top ten. <laughs> Raging Bull. Yeah, uh, Raging Bull is actually the eighties, but nice try. Um, and a lot of people would consider that their favorite films, even though it's not enjoyable to watch uh, that, you know, in the slightest, in my opinion. But um, that is a conversation we will have on that top ten favorite movies episode regardless of how diverse our list is it's going to be a lot of fun i mean yeah. this is why we do this right to, to and is this gush about, about our favorite, your movies, favorite movies all time or is this the best movies of all time i think no, it's it, the constant it is, question question it is 100 favorite um yeah. and you know i heard someone say this recently that if your favorite movies of all time are like citizen kane you know, Casablanca, The Godfather, right? Like you, those are not your favorite movies. Like, um, all right, like, I, that was that always disappointed me about Roger Ebert, right? Like, like this guy who has seen every movie that has ever existed and loves movies more than anybody. His favorite movie was Citizen Kane. I was like, really? Like, yes, it's an amazing movie, but like, is it your favorite movie of all time? Like, I wanted something more creative than that, I guess. But um, that we will be doing our our favorites for sure. And and yes, there are there is some overlap, I think, on my list at least of. Yes, I do consider this to be one of the greatest movies of all time. But like my number one favorite movie? No, I don't think it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Like if we're talking objectively. Um, but that, again, we well, will address that on this, the episode. This particular writer might take exception to you saying that eh, it's not, not the best movie of all time. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that one, I think that one of his movies that he's written is in is in, in contention for best movie of all time, but not not the one that I uh, have labeled. But yeah. we'll keep you in suspense for another couple of weeks about who we're talking about. I mean, I think it's probably not too hard. Francis to Ford out you know Coppola. Me. Is it the Godfather? Yes, that famous Godfather writer too. Um, but uh, just wanted to make that announcement here. So get excited! But that'll do it for this episode of Something Like It, Scott. Scott, where can our listeners listeners find you on Twitter? At Shelton two zero one three, where I am lighting up the Twitter sphere with my takedowns of theater chains, where they don't require you to wear masks.
lovely. Um, and I am at <laughs> Scarby Dent. Lovely. I, I did get the notification this week when you tweeted something. It was like, Scott Shelton tweeted for the first time in a while, which I think that's most of your tweets. It's you tweeting for the first time in a while. But um, regardless, I am at Scarby Dent. I mean, look, you, you make them count is what I would say. I just have a bunch of random crap on there. Um, but you can follow me at Scarby Dent for that random crap. Um Please uh, also check out our podcast Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash mediaplunkpods. Uh, a lot of tiers over there. You can support us. Even if you can't support us, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope we will be back for episode 99 slash 100 next week. Uh, and when we will be discussing the John Stewart directed uh, political comedy drama, Irresistible. Uh, until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Will it be irresistible? Boo.